Welcome back. I'm Max Bergman, director of the Stewart Center and Europe-Russia-Eurasia program at CSIS. And I'm Maria Snigovaya, senior fellow for Russia and Eurasia. And you're listening to Russian Roulette, a podcast discussing all things Russia and Eurasia from the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in. We've got a very special episode today, which will center on the important topic of the humanitarian costs of the war in Ukraine. And we have a very special guest uh, joining us today is President Zelensky's Commissioner for the Protection of the Rights of Military Personnel of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, Alona Verbetskaya. We will be discussing a range of topics connected to the war, along with Elena's specific portfolio and its vital humanitarian role. Thank you so much for joining us today. I was wondering maybe to start, you could describe what you're doing here in Washington about maybe what your role is in Ukraine. For nine years, I'm working on the human rights in uh, in the defense sector in Ukraine. During those years, I was an advisor of Joint Chief of Staff, advisor of um, Prosecutor General, and now I'm an advisor of President on this particular topic of human rights of defenders. Right now, because um, basically all of our military members are on the front line, and we mostly work with uh, families of military members, including um, families of um, those who are currently fighting prisoners of war, missing in action, and killed in action. So in her jurisdiction are issues related to them getting, uh, to those families getting some kind of compensations or understanding what's going on, for example, in case of prisoners of war, right, to figure out what, what is happening. It's her all under her jurisdiction. While her main job is to work with military members, she's also working with uh, civilian hostages. Um, for example, uh, people who were not members of military, but they are, let's say, in, cust- in, in prison in Russia right now. I'm here to meet with uh, non-government organizations, academic institutions, and to discuss uh, issues of human rights violations and genocide in Ukraine. What are some of the biggest challenges that you're facing on a on a day-to-day basis? What is the issue that you're spending perhaps the most time on? And maybe you could walk us through what your sort of average day looks like when you're when you're in Ukraine. Uh, every day it's non-stop meetings with family members, different military departments and different security sectors because there are a lot of information and cases that are coming to her that need to be rechanneled. Also, it includes a very close relationship and uh, work with a prosecutor general to control investigations, to collect information for prosecution in particular cases, to work with cases for that's going to be hopefully in the future in uh, international criminal court. The hardest question in her job is working with families in cases finding uh, missing in action and prisoners of war, because their locations are mostly not known to Ukrainian side. 
Поскольку Российская Федерация нарушает все международные договора коллективной безопасности, правила ведения войны, международную Женев... Женевскую конвенцию... Ah, because Russia is violating basically all kinds of international agreements. Uh, Ukraine has no access to Russian controlled territories. И точно так же мы не имеем возможности через Международный комитет Красного Креста в России. And it's a problem not only in Russian controlled territories, but in Russia itself, because even Russian Red Cross doesn't have any access to to there. Не во все места содержания, не во все лагеря, следственные изоляторы, колонии. International Red Cross is not allowed into majority, almost all of prisons and camps inside Russia, so they could not check the conditions and uh, rights there. Uh, in Russia, there are more than 50 places where they are holding prisoners of war and uh, uh, civilian hostages. И даже тогда, когда представители Международного комитета Красного Креста имеют доступ к этим местам содержания, они устанавливают личность. По тем людям, которые возвращаются из плена, мы также видим их физическое, психологическое состояние. Это очень большие потери в весе. For those returned um, from in exchange from prisons in Russia, we could see that their state and it's very poor health, health-wise, so psychological and and physical. So, for example, they have broken bones that didn't heal correctly. They lose a weight up to 30 kilograms, and of course, it's psychological problems. So they are pressing them psychologically, intentionally. So, for example, they could enter the Russian military or FSB would would enter the cell where uh, Ukrainian prisoners of war are held and tell them, "Oh, like uh, get your stuff together. We're going to you're going to be exchanged." But there is no actual uh, actual exchange being approved. Like it's 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 fake. So they would get them in a bus and drive them to the border, but there is like nothing because there was no agreement about it. And they would tell Ukrainians, you see, uh, Ukrainian prisoners of war, you see, like, there is no one on the other side, so Ukrainians are not coming to pick you up, they don't care about you. But we're in a war for nine years, so um, Ukraine military members, they know already about those things and those tricks Russia does, So, and, and that Ukraine does not, you know, forget about them, so they don't believe it and they know that they would be exchanged. They also make them sing a Russian anthem. Недавно был сюжет о том, как бывшие военнопленные женщины. The same is applied to women who are prisoners of war and civilians in hostage situation there. They would beat them and apply psychological pressure. Но отсутствие доступа до этих мест содержания не дает возможности Украине не фиксировать эти нарушения, не как-то. But because we don't have access to those places, there is not much we could do in relation to helping them right now. Когда случилась трагедия в Еленовке в колонии, где содержались военнопленные? When the attack on Yelenovka happened, no international organization or any anyone was allowed to go there to actually check what happened there. Поэтому, к сожалению, мы сейчас можем собирать информацию только на тех уже территориях, которые мы освобождаем, и есть возможность опросить свидетелей. 
So we could only um, collect information in areas that were liberated already and collect information and build cases for future prosecution. Um, I would also want to raise the issue of um, like so-called hostages that are remaining uh, in a uh, ter under, territory not under control of Ukraine. Это люди, которые пребывали на момент оккупации в интернатах. Those are people who, uh, when Russia came, were in orphanages, prisons, um, retirement communities, hospitals, including mental hospitals, uh, when Russian came. We could not help them. Um, international organizations don't have access to them, and which basically means that they are totally under the mercy of Russian occupation force. It's more than 100,000 people. It's a very important question of access to those territories, that, um, and I would really want uh, this issue to be raised by international politicians, um, so it could maybe help. Thank you very much, Alona. It's, of course, uh, horrible. Uh, you mentioned uh, the, the military, of uh, Ukrainian military, who, soldiers who have been captured, who have been captured by the Russian side. Could you give us uh, some estimates of how many of them have been captured by the Russian military? I could not comment on how many military members we have uh, in captivity in Russia, but military members plus uh, civilian hostages, it's around 13,000. But again, it's around because even like Russian side, it does not say how many and whom they have um, as prisoners of war. It's important to mention that is in general citizens of Ukraine uh, who are missing in action, most likely in Russia. And particularly, you know, separately, I would want to emphasize the issue of kids in this position. So Russia is taking kids from orphanages um, under Russian-controlled territories, and not only orphans, but kids who have parents. Um, by doing that, they force parents to also go to Russia, basically, to reunite with their kids. So right now, Ukraine was able to identify uh, 16,000 kids that were taken from Ukraine. Identify with name, with everything. But we identified them, but we don't have any information about their whereabouts. And uh, Russia is hiding it, saying that uh, it's a secrecy of adoption. And um, I could not even imagine how we would be able to trace them till they're old enough to basically identify themselves as being Ukrainian taken to Russia. And at the same time, like Ukraine identified 16,000, but Russia at the same time it's in its propaganda is giving some uh, an absolutely colossal number of kids saying that it's the number we saved from Ukraine. Um, but um, right now there was at least a small group of kids that was returned to Ukraine under pressure of international organization politicians, and it was a joint work of ombudsman from Ukraine and um, his counterpart in Russia. 
And do you have a sense why Russia is doing that uh, to the kids? Based on my understanding, right, these are the sort of actions that could be qualified as genocidal based on the international legislation. Like, what's, what, what are they trying to achieve? Russia has a lot of orphans of their own, right, that they could adopt if there was the issue. Я расцениваю это именно как проявление геноцида. Это попытки уничтожить нацию, потому что I see it as a total genocide because they are um, killing the like current generation of Ukrainians in the battlefield, and that way they are destroying the future generation of Ukrainians by giving them by taking them to Russia, giving them Russian passports, new names, new identities, and so I was going to ask about the the prisoner exchanges that have occurred. Maybe you could walk us through, there must be, you know, there's correspondence with the, the Russian side about the prisoner exchanges. And when the Ukrainians uh, return, uh, you described the difficult state that many are in. Maybe you could both t tell us a little bit about how frequent there are prisoner exchanges. Is that a kind of business-like uh, correspondence with the Russians? And then when the Ukrainians come back, are they in a state that is not able to sort of go back into, into the fight? Or, or have they been sort of deliberately weakened, so to speak? And then is Russia kind of sending back people who they're deliberately hoping won't be able to return to the battle? Exchanges, it's it's ongoing work about exchanges is ongoing nonstop. Uh, on Ukrainian side, uh, those in charge of it are GUR, a general intelligence directorate, and SBU, security service. Those are in charge, but it's it's ongoing constantly. And at the same time, in parallel, ombudsmen for human rights of Ukraine and Russia are also working on that nonstop. I'm not sure why they are mistreating and torturing prisoners, but I th they were doing it for nine years, and I think it's to put pressure, not only psychological pressure, not only on them, uh, but also on other members of military, just to show them that like going into being captured is not good. Basically, probably they try to threaten them so they don't join military. There's been a lot of coverage here in the West about Russian war crimes, whether it's in Bucha or in Irpin or the leveling of Mariupol. But it seems like in your role as well, you are uh, having witnesses return that are also witnessing uh, Russian war crimes. How are you going about and how is the Ukrainian government going about trying to hold Russia accountable at some point for the war crimes that it is committing in Ukraine? Украина делает основную работу это сбор доказательной базы для того чтобы все преступники были привлечены к ответственности Украина is doing basically the main work here it's collecting evidences because without you know a proper collection and you know good evidence there would be no trials and no prosecutions for sure so that's what Ukraine is doing um, it's a joint work of prosecutor general office and law enforcement. So they're collecting information on the ground, let's say, in liberated territories and also with returned prisoners. I wanted to also ask about one of the uh, new stories that was uh, widely covered here in the United States regarding the uh, long siege of the Azovstal steel works in Mariupol and subsequent uh, prison exchange that led to the release of some of those uh, soldiers. And uh, your involvement in this process, uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit of what was happening behind the scenes, what the status quo right now is, right? Because not all of the prisoners have been exchanged, uh, to my knowledge, and uh, main strategies that your government has used in negotiating with Moscow. 
Азовсталь находится в, точно в таких же списках, как и все остальные, потому что у нас война не только на территории Мариуполя и пленные не только в Members of Azov Battalion from Azov are still there on regular lists with other members of military, just the regular members of military. Um, so they're in the same list for exchange, and Ukraine is trying to get as many people as possible, but it's not, uh, it's not Ukraine decision. One of the problems is that Russia doesn't give confirmation on whom they actually have in their prison. So, for example, in case of Azov Steel, everyone saw those videos with buses when they were taken from Azov Steel and taken to Russia. And, you know, a lot of people identified um, particular people in those buses, and but Russia is saying, no, they are not in prison. So they have this custom of not confirming, which is stuff that is obvious. And at the same time, for example, during prison exchanges, they would bring people whom previously they said they don't have in their prisons, so there is no logic to that. But we're doing obviously everything to get all of our military members back home. Can I ask about the, the role of the international community, perhaps the United Nations, in dealing with these issues? Is the UN involved at all? I mean, this strikes me as a potential area where the international community could, could play a role. We're seeing the IAEA at least be involved in the nuclear power plant in Zaporizhia. Is there a role for the UN or the international community in these issues? And, and some political decisions are made, but <clears throat> there is no way to enforce that. So it doesn't help much. Part of your role is to, is I would assume, is to document a lot of what the stories that you were hearing for a potential war crimes trials that could, could take place in The Hague. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how Ukraine is viewing the potential for the International Criminal Court and The Hague to play a role in holding Russia accountable going forward. The role of ICC is in basically protocol uh, of why it was built in the first place. So in terms of prosecuting Russian leadership, it would depend, first of all, on cases and collection of evidences and so on. But in the case of war, it's easier because in military, there is always one person who makes a decision because by definition of military. And um, Putin, for example, is the main person ahead of the whole security in Russia, so definitely he's the one making decisions. But of course, collecting evidence is extremely important, especially on that stage. And uh, people being interviewed who are uh, who are under in a territory that were just recently liberated, then prisoners of war who returned from Ukrainian prisoners of war who returned from Russia, and also Russian military currently in prisons in Ukraine about the chain of command who was making which commands. But I want to highlight that talking about Russian prisoners of war in Ukraine, they've been held um, according to Geneva Convention. 
Международный комитет Красного Креста круглосуточно имеет доступ до мест содержания, они могут с ними... Red Cross has constant 24-hour access to those prisons to control uh, how they're being held there. С своей стороны, мы инициировали, и я это прорабатываю, этот вопрос вместе с министерством. И сейчас мы обговариваем уже следующий этап дополнительных возможностей для военнопленных российских – это допуск их родных. And now we're discussing a next step, uh, which is allowing families of those Russian prisoners who were in Ukraine to have access to actually come visit them in those prisons. Of course, we hope that on Russian side there would be some symmetric steps, but we don't see it now. Поэтому один из вопросов, который я поднимаю во время встреч в, в Америке с правозащитными организациями и другими государственными деятелями, это возможность объединения международных усилий по созданию этого механизма. So one of the issues I'm always raising uh, with international partners is how to basically do a mechanism that would enforce the new Geneva Conventions and other agreements that have been reached that are currently not um, taken seriously by Russia. For example, I just was just having meetings with politicians in Germany and they're already on board with this thing because they saw that um, how it's not enforced uh, all of those agreements. So they're also on board on trying to work something out to make them more enforceable. And here, on the meetings in America, there were also agreements. There are organizations, legal companies, that are ready to join this process. And here in the US, we already had some agreements with uh, law firms and uh, human rights organizations on, on starting working on this mechanism. Я не говорю об изменениях в международное гуманитарное право и I'm not talking about changes of Geneva Conventions, just how to make it work. The contrast you're describing between how Ukraine treats uh, military prisoners and how Russia does it, right, is absolutely uh, striking. And uh, honestly, um, it looks like Russia's uh, prisoner systems has not really evolved much since the Soviet Union. I just wonder if you have any sense of uh, whether there was any reform there at all. And what are the um, uh, next steps going forward now that Russia sort of self-isolates and there's less and less access on the side of the international organizations into the country? No. Uh, I haven't been myself to Russian prison, but, but based on what we see with our members of military when they return from uh, Russian prisons, not only nothing changed from Soviet Union, but I think it actually became worse. So regular prisons should have criminals there, and but now they have prisoners of war. But because uh, by international agreements, the treatment of prisoners of war should be better than other people in prisons. But we could we see the contrary: they treating prisoners of war worse than they do their criminals. It's not a question of. Uh, who is gonna isolate Russia? It's uh, self-isolation of Russia. So, and it it still 
matters who's going to be talking to it and with whom it would be in communication with which country. So we remember how easily they went around sanctions that were imposed on them through, let's say, Belarus. You have a, a front row seat to the human costs of this war and what it's doing to Ukrainian society. I was wondering if that is impacting at all, from your perspective, the willingness on the part of the Ukrainian people to continue this fight. There's a lot of talk here in Washington and other capitals about potential negotiations with Russia and the need to maybe end the conflict. But I'm curious if this is at all being felt by the Ukrainian people or if there's a continued willingness to maintain this fight. It's a very hard question. Because I work with a particular categories of people who are not willing to negotiate. A lot of families she works with lost their loved ones in this war. Every centimeter of the of this land is with Ukrainian blood. Те условия, на которых Россия готова идти на переговоры, это условия, когда они забирают Донбасс, они забирают Крым, мы на все это соглашаемся, это все финансируем, потому что они же их не присоединяют к себе, они просто их ими управляют, а, а финансирует все Украина. Условия Russian conditions for negotiation is the basically still keeping control of the occupied territories. So how could we explain to the families that we're giving up the territory uh, for which their loved ones died? How could we explain to wounded um, members of military that we're just giving up this land right now, the one that we're fighting for? I do understand them and I have nothing to tell them. For them, there would there could be no negotiations before all the kids would be returned, all prisoners of war would be returned, territory would be given back to Ukraine, and also Russia would pay compensation for destroyed infrastructure. That's basically, if it doesn't happen, there would be no negotiations. And keep in mind that the uh, category of people she's talking about, uh, she works with, right? Members of, uh, fa families of... Um, military members is basically the majority of the country right now. So that's the position of majority of the country right now. But if Russia does all that, there's no need for negotiations. Well, Elena, I want to thank you so much for being here, for all the work that you're doing. I think you have probably one of the hardest jobs uh, of any uh, person in, in the world right now. And I think, I, I think I speak for us all when we say that we're so incredibly impressed by uh, the bravery and resolve of the Ukrainian people. And we wish you and all of Ukraine uh, the best going forward in this war and hope that uh, it, it comes to a, a quick victory for Ukraine. Я вам очень благодарна за приглашение, и действительно это очень важно, то, что вы поддерживаете Америка и весь мир поддерживает Украину, потому что война в Украине – это не война России против Украины, это война двух цивилизаций, тоталитаризма с демократией. Thank you so much for inviting me and for uh, thanks U.S. for supporting Ukraine, because right now it's a war between democracy and uh, dictatorship. Thank you, Alena, and glory to Ukraine. You've been listening to Russian Roulette. We hope you enjoyed this episode and tune in again soon. 
Russian Roulette releases new episodes every two weeks on Thursdays and is available wherever you get your podcasts. So please subscribe and share our episodes online. And be sure to check out all the latest analysis by the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program at csis.org.